What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van, but you can call me Mike. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. David Biggs, an Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Riverside. Professor Biggs specializes in the environmental history of Vietnam. His first book, Quagmire, Nation Building and Nature in the Mekong Delta, came out with the University of Washington Press in 2010 and won the George Perkins Marsh Award for the best book in environmental history from the American Society for Environmental History. He is the author of numerous articles, and his work combines traditional document and text-based archival research with cutting-edge uses of maps and aerial photography. Today, we'll be talking about his latest book, Footprints of War, Militarized Landscapes in Vietnam, also with the University of Washington Press. David, welcome to New Books in History. Ah, thanks. Nice to be here. One little addition: I was recently promoted, so I'm now a congratulations, full professor. Full professor. Yeah. You have arrived. Wow, that, that's that's wonderful. Congratulations. Well, well, thanks. based on my reading of these two books, a well-deserved promotion. Thanks. So, so you have really established established yourself as arguably the leading environmental historian of Vietnam. Could you please tell us how you came to be interested in Vietnamese history? Yeah. um, Well, I think like a lot of scholars, it was a circuitous path. Um, I was in college studying American history uh, in the early 1990s, thinking I was probably going to become a lawyer or something uh, useful uh, in my parents' eyes. And uh, just history unfolded things were going along. And then in 1989, the wall fell in East Berlin, um, Tiananmen Square happened. And as a 19 year old, I'm just watching all of this on the news. And in 91, the Soviet Union fell and uh, I graduated in 92. And I think a lot of my friends and I, we just felt like we had to get out there. We had to get out in the world uh, to see some corner of it. And be a part of these changes uh, in in some way, and you know it was a real moment of possibility. Um, the U.S. was in a recession. Uh, this was Bush Senior, uh, his presidency, and uh, I um, we didn't have the internet, and um, I had no money, and I asked 
my professors, well, where do we go? So we went where everyone went. Then we went to the library. And uh, I remember going to a social science librarian. Uh, you know, reference librarians are incredible wizards, uh, under underappreciated, I think, by students today. Yes. And um, I asked them, how do I go about finding a teaching job in Vietnam? Why not go to Vietnam? Like we all figured the Czech Republic, uh, the Velvet Revolution, we thought maybe Vietnam will be next. And uh, this person, she got me into some directories. I found an organization out of Stanford called Volunteers in Asia. Um, oh, yeah. Volunteers in Asia is great. Yeah, it's a fantastic organization. It was founded in the 60s, uh, similar in some ways to the model of the Peace Corps. Um, specifically focused in Asia and also going to countries that didn't yet have uh, diplomatic relations with the United mm -hmm. States. Um, right. It was non-religious, non-governmental. Um, all they did was teach English. And what, what year did you do VIA? I did oh, VIA, it's two, years, two years stint, correct? Yeah, two years stint, 1993. So, okay. So, so I, said, I did I was about six years before Mitch, uh, Mitch Asso went. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I interviewed yeah. Mitch. I remember when oh, he, did. Okay. he applied yeah. and, you know, and a lot of academics, um, both before me and, and after were, uh, went through VIA. Yeah. Uh, I almost did. I almost did VIA to Indonesia and a couple of things came up and I couldn't do it. Yeah. I was yeah. excited about that. It's a tough gig. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, my salary was $300 a month. And I was teaching at a Vietnamese university. I was just living local standard. Um, where were I, you in Vietnam? I was in Saigon. And, oh, in Saigon. Yeah, I was teaching at the Economics University, uh, which used to be the pre-75 law school right in the middle of town. Yeah. yeah. And there were maybe two dozen American teachers working around Saigon at that time. And yeah. Um, it, it was an amazing time. It was hard in some ways, um, but I was meeting, um, you know, there, I was making friends with local Vietnamese uh, teachers, students. Uh, there's some Russians there. Um, there were Russians who had been study abroad students to Vietnam from Moscow who, after the Soviet Union fell and their economy collapsed, just stayed. And yeah. Yeah, they were that's... doing odd jobs, and we were speaking to each other in our my pigeon Vietnamese. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they ended up getting very rich, these Russians. They were um, because they knew the Vietnamese artists, and there were a lot of painters who um, these painters were, you know, world class painters, totally underappreciated because their their work was not really in the socialist frame. So they had right. been really oppressed. And when Vietnam began opening up, the world discovered their art, and and these guys had purchased a lot of these paintings and were selling them in Europe. And uh, you know, so it was just kind of a cowboy time. There were American yeah, vets, early nineties and early nineties. There were American vets who were coming back to Vietnam. Um, some of these individuals spoke Vietnamese. One guy, um, he um, he was an Army Signal Corps guy who was uh, also trained in Vietnamese and he had worked with radio intercepting transmissions or something. And uh, he really knew these Motorola radios really well. 
Well, mm-hmm. it turned out Motorola hired him to go back to Vietnam, and um, he was negotiating um, new radio uh, communications at the Saigon airport. And he's, he said, yeah, we laid those communications in 1966 or 67, and the Vietnamese wanted us back. And, you know, it was so the, the same people to work on the, the infrastructure created during the war. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. So I, I think it was really yeah. at that time um, I was debating myself, should I go to law school or uh, should I really become uh, an historian? And instead of studying the U.S., study Vietnam because there weren't that many Americans writing about Vietnam. And, um, you know, and I, re- I really love both options, but I, uh, I said, I'll, I'll apply to graduate school. And if somebody pays me to go to grad school, then I'll, I'll do that. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll, you know, quote unquote, get a real job. Um, <laughs> and that one thing led to another, you know, I, I went to grad school in Seattle. Um, I had phenomenal advisors. Uh, I had a, a professor who worked ma- mainly in Indonesia, but she was really a Southeast Asianist. And that really, Lori Sears? Lori Sears. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's she, fantastic work. Yeah, really fantastic work. Um, really theoretically intense. And then my my second mm-hmm. advisor was an Americanist named Richard White, uh, who's uh, retired now at Stanford. And I think Richard White's quite famous. Um, he, mm-hmm. he won his uh, MacArthur Prize a few years before I showed up. And again, I'm so I was so ignorant. I was like, well, "What's that?" You know. And <laughs> everybody said, "Well, he won't be here long," and he wasn't. Um, but he was incredibly devoted to grad students and uh, yeah so i had a nice cohort yeah yeah so so how did you come to be interested in environmental history as an aspect of vietnamese history so the other thing that happened to me in undergrad is that i became an environmental activist um my university university of north carolina uh was um had this great mix of out of state students from all over the place. And I think we read a report by Bill McKibben, uh, that came out in like 87 or 88, um, talking about sort of exceeding earth's carrying capacity. Uh, there was new work coming out at that time on greenhouse gases and global warming. And, you know, this group of really, uh, really engaged students there uh, said, this is crazy. We're crossing a threshold. We need to organize students across the country to, to be active and to, um, to press for change, you know, and uh, it was a fantastic learning experience uh, going to protests, uh, working with senior activists, uh, people who had gone into government, people who'd uh, been part of students for a democratic society, um, uh, David Brower came out. He's, uh, one of the founders of the Sierra club. Um, uh, you know, we met this older generation of activists, both environmental activists and social activists. And, um, it was, it was an incredible learning experience. Um, I went in with some students also to look at environmental justice in disadvantaged communities, um, racial violence, tied up with environmental uh, injustice in places like Cancer Alley on the lower Mississippi, where predominantly African-American communities are uh, drinking water contaminated by chemical um, outflow. 
Bill Clinton was running for president. Um, but before that, we knew him as the governor who was going to incinerate remaining stockpiles of dioxin-laced Agent Orange. Oh, um, I did, I did uh, not know that. This guy is a bad oh, character. We like, oh. this Clinton guy, so, you know, he's going he's gonna, to, you know, put all this dioxin in the air. And then six months later, he's the Democratic candidate for president. So, uh, so I had, I had a certain environmental politics I was very committed to from college, uh, drove my parents nuts. My father's a nuclear engineer. He's retired, uh, when he was in the Navy, um, very, you know, conservative, they weren't hippies or anything. And, um, I was, I didn't know how exactly I wanted to make a contribution, but I was a, a history major and I was thinking, well, maybe writing, maybe writing is the way to do it. And, uh, and environmental history was kind of a new thing, but I, I felt like it was really important to me. And, and then I went to Vietnam and I thought, man, this is a country that has, is really on the cutting edge of uh, or maybe the the razor's edge of climate change. Uh, places like the Mekong Delta are going to be underwater in 50 years. And that's where Vietnam's rice comes from. So food security, how do these developing countries without the money that the United States has, uh, how how do they um, protect themselves? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I started kind of putting these things together um, when I applied to graduate school and, and I started developing my uh, research. That's great. Uh, the, that your ability to link your activism with your intellectual pursuits and make a career out of that is just fabulous. Um, so I, you know, for the uh, people perhaps not as familiar with the, the field um, I, I think we should note that there seems to be kind of a, a moment in um, Vietnamese environmental history right, uh, right now. It seems kind of kind of hot right now, right? In addition to your two books, there's Mitch Asao's book on rubber, and I got to discuss uh, this book with him a few weeks ago on this podcast. And I'd also note that in his you know somewhat controversial 500-page history of Vietnam, Ben Kiernan, in in my opinion, I think Ben Kiernan does a great job of working in environmental history as a crucial aspect of his larger narrative of Vietnamese history. And I'm also going to put in a totally shameless plug for my book, uh, The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, which is itself a case of urban ecological history uh, about Hanoi. So that there's a, quite a bit of work on environmental history in Vietnam right now. Do you think this is a special moment? Is there a turn in the historiography of the, of the nation? I mean, this I is think, a field yeah. so dominated by military and political history, right? There's, yeah. Is there, are, we, are we starting to make a turn and look at some other yeah, things? I think, there, I think there are two things going on. Um, one, I think that in the United States and in Europe, um, somewhat in Asia, universities, environmental history is the topic in history departments, um, environmental studies, environmental humanities. And... I think that universities are responsive to society and what's going on. And so Greta Thunberg, um, Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, universities are looking at who to hire. And uh, this year on the job market, I think there are six um, six uh, positions in environmental history, including one in Southeast Asian environmental history. I never in my life thought I'd see a job listed that way. 
um, <laughs> at Santa Cruz. Um, but these are big schools, Chicago, MIT, you know, major top tier university history departments are saying we need environmental historians. Um, and I do, I do think that's fantastic. I think that humanities scholarship has taken so many interesting turns in, in recent years. And, uh, I think that, you know, for people working in Vietnam, uh, it, you know, it's another, uh, sort of aspect of that. It's, it's in some senses responsive to the Western university climate. Are Vietnamese historians in Vietnam writing environmental history? That's kind of a different question. And right. uh, there are some. Um, there's uh, some people working at Hanoi National University and some other places. Um, but that's a really important question in Vietnam about historiography and how history gets written. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I mean, it's it's an exciting time to be an historian working in, in Vietnam because the field is finally opening up. Uh, we see it at bookshops where uh, foreign books about Vietnam, some of which, you know, Vietnamese students love just as much as foreign students are finally in translation. They're showing up. Um, And, you know, I think someone, you have to understand the politics of a socialist uh, country that is so beleaguered by war and is right next door to uh, the Middle Kingdom. You know, that a small country, they're very, you know, you can be very xenophobic in Vietnam about outside influences. And the party in particular has taken a very strong position about how history is written. And for years, I had Vietnamese professors, you know, I'd tried to explain what I was doing, writing a history of the Mekong Delta and nature and nature building. And, you know, at first they just looked at me like I was from Mars, you know, they that's <laughs> not history. That's not, that's not allowed. That's not what we do. Um, I had one. There's no people. Where are the people? Where right. are the Well, there's right? no state. More important. No state, yeah. And that is yeah. threatening to say mm. history with no state in a country that feels so vulnerable, you know, with all the stuff going on in the South China Sea and, and whatnot. Uh, and it's long. And, 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 and uh, with universities dominated by the party that has, is at least aspirationally totalitarian, right? I mean, whether or not it's a totalitarian state, it's a separate debate. I, that, that idea I don't that, know. That yeah, I wouldn't go right there. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't go there. I mean, I think, I think yeah. you know, that, that that's, a, that's a different conversation about yeah. the yeah. role of the party and how meaningful it is in university life in Vietnam. But mm-hmm. as far as history writing goes, um, we're just seeing, I mean, I'm just seeing in this last five or six years, uh, grad students and postdocs from Vietnamese universities writing environmental history or doing history of indigenous non-Vietnamese peoples mm-hmm. in the highlands or doing really phenomenal work. Um, a lot of them have, besides English, native speakers and Vietnamese, many of them read Chinese or they read French and um, they're local. You know, they can do the kinds of studies that foreigners you know, there for a one-year Fulbright or two years, you know, struggle to do. Right. And um, so so there's there's a lot of change about how history is written in Vietnam. Well, that's great. And, well, yeah. So let's, let's, now let's let's do uh, let's talk about your your book and let's let's talk, let's start off talking about your methodology. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I know some of our listeners may have heard the term GIS or geographic information systems uh, data and how people work with that. And um, I know my friend David Del Testa at Bucknell is doing some interesting work with GIS and the, uh, the Nineteen Soviets of 1930-1931 and mapping these political events. Um, for, for the layman in the field, what is, what is GIS? So geographic information system is basically a cartographic database. So you take um, a map, whether it's a digitally produced map or a paper map that's scanned. And if you assign coordinates to all of those, uh, all of that data, then it's possible to organize it in a database. And a GIS uh, software package allows you to view those different layers um, and it, it can lead to some really good insights. Um, so, for example, uh, looking at old aerial photography from the war, uh, as long as you geo-reference it, you put those coordinates in and you digitize it, you can lay it directly on top of a present-day satellite image. So you can see kind of a then and now image. Um, and what's really useful about that, thinking about war remnants, um, old base uh, landscapes or hazardous waste dumps, things like that, is that in the present day, um, trees, uh, buildings, other activity often covers up or masks what used to be there. So much so the locals don't even know because people have moved through these landscapes and migrated and, you know, new residents and whatnot. Um, so by using a GIS, it's possible to, in a sense, see these old footprints of, you know, old traces of war. And then in some cases to visit these places and talk to people about them and say, what do you know used to be here? And I think that, you know, for an environmentalist story, and we, we really love to get out and do a bit of, uh, ethnography in a sense, kind of place-based ethnography, um, to, to gather stories in, in here. So, so a GIS is a really useful tool in that way. Um, I will say that for me in any way, as an historian, I feel that I'm kind of misusing the software for what it was intended for. Mis- um, misusing it really. How so? Yeah. Well, GIS software is, you know, uh, like, um, Esri's ArcGIS. That's probably the most famous, uh, sort of well-used, uh, software package. Um, it just contains a lot of math. It's uh, useful for uh, land development, urban planning, um, network analyses, 3D modeling of uh, flooding or other hazards. Um, it's used by government agencies, but it's kind of future oriented. It's it's used to kind of predict you know, where land prices will be valuable in the future or likelihood that a neighborhood will suffer more crime, uh, where to locate the fire stations, things like that. But historians, we're looking backwards and we can't really use the prescriptive aspects of GIS for our work because our work is inherently reflective. And um, so so it's, I think it's a useful tool, uh, and I, I certainly made use of it in my uh, my current book. Um, but it's, but it's also it it there are some challenges with it, and there are also some biases with GIS in the sense that it privileges certain kinds of cartographic information, um, but it also we maybe run the risk if we follow the GIS too much 
Can you um, give an example of that? Well, a GIS is good at depicting um, certain built features of a landscape. And it's possible to, for example, look at um, bombing, uh, bomb craters, uh, base you know, areas. But one thing that when you were telling the story about these spaces that, you know, the GIS can't really provide are sort of invisible meanings of these landscapes or the politics of these places. And, um, you know, we can quantify how many bomb craters there are or how many, you know, people lived in these places or where they put all the hazardous waste. But, but understanding the function of that landscape, uh, how that landscape, you know, changes over time, for that, you really have to go to villages and talk to people and, in you know, and understand how people lived in, in these landscapes. So, right. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. So what kind of sources did you use for footprints of war? Yeah. Well, first let me, I think I should say a little bit about yeah. what I set out to do with footprints okay. of war. So there have been a lot of books written about war, uh, in Vietnam, uh, yes. <laughs> thousands and thousands, yes. you go to any library and from all different, you know, combatant experiences, as, women yeah, in as, war. As a um, historian of Vietnam who does not work on the war, it can be a little frustrating at times because it's, you know, for obvious reasons is what a lot of Americans want to talk about. Right. right. And, um, I mean, in, it has, it's fascinating when you're there, um, you know, just, the people around today, especially older people, they lived through that war and it shaped them. So I think it's important to, to pay respect to that. Um, but um, these books, I mean, the, some of the first books were done in the 70s, the early 70s, like a book on ecocide uh, about the U.S. military spraying of forests and deliberate destruction of ecosystems. Um, and um, one thing, though, that I, I think is, is really missing in um, the ways that people think about war in, in Vietnam is that it's not just one war. It's not our war or the French war or the Vietnamese war. But living in these landscapes, you're really living in spaces that have been shaped by multiple wars o- over time. And um, I, I think more importantly is to understand the legacies of war and and how military processes shape society, not just the landscape in terms of a bomb crater or a hazardous waste site, um, but really about land use, uh, about how people remember or access certain landscapes, um, many of which are really sacred or valuable to their community. Um, And there are a lot of conflicts that are still going on, uh, even though the Americans are gone, the war's over. Uh, over some of these old landscapes. So so really what I set out to do in the book, uh, Footprints of War, was to talk about the war, the American war, and sort of its environmental effects, um, but to situate that in a deeper context. And I, I think when people, especially in the United States, when they think about Vietnam, you know, they say, you know, they think of Vietnam just as the war. And we have the saying, you know, Vietnam's a country, uh, not a war. And I think actually Vietnam is much more than a country. It's an incredible kind of kaleidoscopic patchwork of sites and places. And if you spend time in Vietnam and you spend time in places that used to be a war zone, like uh, Hue, 
the former imperial capital, uh, 1966, the Tet Offensive, Battle of Way. I think people have maybe seen images of it in movies like Full Metal Jacket or something. Um, right. You spend time the in second, the country. second half of Full Metal Jacket is all about the, the Battle of Way. As it's filmed on a, yeah, it's filmed on a soundstage, but it's sort of yeah. made to look yeah. like Way. And I spent yeah. a lot of time in Way, and it's an incredible town just incredible mm. if you spend time in these places like i remember i had a conversation with an historian um near the Hue airport and that was a, a u.s uh, marine base really big one had about fifteen thousand troops there um uh until 72 or 73 and i was talking to this historian who studies the early modern history of vietnam uh, and say well i i guess this place must have been a village and a village graveyard and some sand dunes and, you know, must have been okay, you know, kind of an interesting place before the Marines showed up. And he turned and he said, well, actually, this was the site of the Lay Dynasty barracks when the Vietnamese invaded this coastline in 1368. Wow. And then the Viets and the Chams fought the Ming invasion in 1407. Right. And right. then it just went on and on and on. And and I and he said, well, you know why the, the French colonials, you know why they put the runway there, right? And I said, no. He said, well, the hills behind here have iron ore and the village that the airport's named for, Fubai, um, that was the iron working village. And they had about 150 kilns smelting iron ore. And when you smelt iron ore, you get the, the metal but you produce a lot of slag, kind of toxic waste. Mm -hmm. So the runway was basically built on an artificial berm made from 200 years of iron production, slag. Mm -hmm. It was dead soil. And so... So, you know, those kind of conversations really changed my view about how we understand war, how we understand wartime destruction, you know, and um, I started thinking about the way that military processes kind of run through the landscape. And what I wanted to do in this book is not to provide a kind of accounting, how many bombs were dropped, how much tonnage, um, how many acres of forest were destroyed, how many lives were lost, and that sort of thing. Like people have done that for years. But instead, I wanted to kind of make the book a kind of like a lens or sort of look at military processes with new eyes. Um, and so I said, so it's kind of, it's a little weird in a way. Um, it may not be what some readers are expecting and they just want to, you know, kind of follow these stories of destruction and military conflict and, you know, whatnot. But I think it's really important, especially in this day and age. So, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the book is, more um, a kind of excavation of these landscapes around Hue to understand how years of different military conflicts become layered one on top of the other, and in some senses, how they relate to each other. Yeah. At one point in the book, you use the term that this is a history in layers and wars. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what you're referring to, these these layers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, literally excavating. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think this is so important. I've had great conversations with combat veterans who served in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, uh, Vietnam. 
and um, I'm really interested in their perspectives of landscape um, because mm. these are, you know, during times of combat, of course, you're paying a lot of attention to ridgelines, to certain features, but you're also paying attention to cultural features. And um, one fellow here at Riverside was in my uh, seminar. He was a combat veteran from Afghanistan. He did three tours there. And he was talking about uh, fighting in Kandahar on a mountain valley, uh, looking across the valley at ruins of 16th century um, guard posts and, you know, gates and fortified um, embankments. And the people that were shooting at him were hanging out in these 16th century embankments. And, um, you know, I mean, and he, he's, he was very reflective about it and saying, my God, you know, here we are, we've come into this Valley and we're fighting people who are rooted in these landscapes that at least they have a story about their, um, their connection to these places that they trace directly back to, you know, hundreds of years ago. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened in Vietnam. Um, yeah. and, and the impact yeah. of the landscape on how wars can be fought. Um, yeah. And, and, geography. I, and I want to disassociate the term landscape from just a physical landscape, you know, uh-huh. physical processes, but it's really important to understand the cultural political, social attachments to landscape. For example, uh, these U.S. Marines, um, when they're hanging out in this sort of wasted area around the the airstrip, you know, the the military needs a place to build its base and the villages are taken. Um, Vietnam does not have a lot of flat coastal land. And so they move to the open land. Well, that open land is where the villagers buried their dead. And so the Marines built their base. Later, the U.S. Army did another one next to it in a graveyard. And you, at first, uh, the uh, Navy Seabees, they were the construction battalions in charge. Uh, they just turned their bulldozers and started bulldozing straight lines through these tombs, these concrete and stone tombs. Well, that did not go over well with the American sort of supposed, you know, hearts and minds they wanted to win in the village, they quickly stopped that. And then Mm -hmm. they just built around it. So you can see all of these images of these bases in central Vietnam, where you've got a building and a, um, or a helipad or something. And then right next to it is one of these stone tombs. And, you know, American veterans, they talk about, you know, jumping inside those stone walls when rocket and mortar attacks were going on because they were protected there. But can you imagine laying down in a tomb during a war while friends are going home in body bags and thinking, right. you know, what do you do with these landscapes? You know, I right. mean, think of the impact that had on their their mental, you know, outlook. Yeah. Um, this, let me push this a little further and ask you to explicitly unpack your term militarized landscapes. Yeah. So what does what does that mean? Well, I like the term landscape. There's, you know, most people, I think they think of landscape as something from art. You know, you think of a view or a scape of, of waterfalls or 
pretty scenery or something like that. But, you know, if we push landscape a little more, it can do a lot of work for us. Um, what, you know, it's, it's different from the term uh, ecosystem or environment. You know, what it, what it reminds us is that, you know, land really depends on the, the perceptions and the, the, the language, the terms, the, the stories that people invest in those places. Um, and, I think in especially military uh, tacticians think about terrain and terrain is a nice word for just thinking about the physical properties of a valley or a hillside or exposed points or, you know, where you're going to set up your mortars so you can, you know, reach whatever your target is. Um, but landscape reminds us that these places have symbolic meanings and, I think a lot of combat veterans uh, going walking through different landscapes, they can really appreciate that sometimes these symbolic meanings are maybe more important than the physical meanings. I mean, why do a group of insurgents insist on fighting on certain patches of soil? Why are they willing to die? Why are they willing to risk a dozen lives to protect a patch of soil? It's because that patch of soil is not like every other patch of soil. And so I, I try to unpack that a bit in the book to, to appreciate why certain terrains, certain places in Vietnam were so meaningful, um, meaningful to insurgents, meaningful to uh, other combatants. Uh, and the other term militarization is, is important, too. Uh, because these stories about these landscapes inevitably become tied up in stories about the war. And this term militarization is, is one that a lot of people are using. And they're using it not just to talk about, you know, where the tanks were parked or uh, where the Agent Orange was stored or, you know, a particular battlefield. But they're talking about how military occupation really um, transforms cultures. It transforms experiences. You find, you know, military symbolism in the media and you find it in schools. You find it in the histories that, that people write. And you also find it in post-war, uh, development. And, and that's an area I focus on in the book. Um, you know, one thing, I think a lot of people, when they think about a, a military leaving a place like the U.S. bases closing in Iraq, they think, well, the bases close, all the stuff gets removed and new people use the land. Um, but in fact, military, you know, transit land transactions are really complicated. In Vietnam, uh, when U.S. forces left, uh, the military has real estate agents, you know, they basically do a survey of all the property, just like if you're selling your house and, uh, they estimate the values they negotiate with another military. So the U S turned over its bases to the South Vietnamese military. Uh, when Saigon fell, uh, the people's army from Hanoi, they sent down their real estate agents and they, basically surveyed all of the new bases, the new properties. And militaries don't like to give up their properties, uh, certainly not for free. And, uh, you know, in Vietnam is no exception there. So, so the, the conflict in many ways led to these massive land transfers in the early 60s um, from village lands and other lands that were, you know, put together in these bases. 
And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the early 2000s, a developmentalist, you know, development minded Vietnamese state said, well, these are the perfect places to build export processing zones and industrial parks. Uh, so, so militarization, in a sense, has, you know, direct ties to uh, Vietnam's industrialization. Um, the biggest airports, the biggest air, you know, export zones are former U.S. bases. Mm-hmm. So I wanted I want readers in this book to really look at landscape and maybe not, you know, maybe they'll use the Vietnamese case, but I want them to think about our own landscapes in the United States or in other places as militarized spaces and, and how mm-hmm. military action in the past, you know, shapes these places. And also it silences other claims to the land, for example, indigenous claims to a lot of land in the United States, as well as in Vietnam. Right, right. Now, your first book focused on the Mekong Delta in southern Vietnam, and Footprints takes us to central Vietnam, the area around Hue and uh, just south of the, the famous DMZ. Why did you choose this region? Well, in some ways, the region chose me. Um, talking about war is not uh, easy for especially an American in Vietnam, an American historian. Um, you don't, it's not easy to walk up to people, to a family and ask them questions about the past um, in that time. But I was uh, leading student groups to Hue, uh, study abroad. And um, I had a conversation with an environmental policy leader in the province. And uh, what I didn't know at the time was that he had been dealing with some toxic waste cleanups that were very expensive for the province. And they were uh, surprise finds of American wartime chemicals, particularly um, a chemical called CS or CS2, which is a kind of powdered tear gas. It's very caustic and um, sticks to your skin, uh, causes burns. And, um, they had, they had uncovered some of this and basically, uh, we were at, could, 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 I, could I interrupt? Like when you say uncovered them, um, what, what happened? I mean, again, so you talk about this. I have but... to appreciate, okay, this is a terrain issue. Um, when a military leaves a place in the 1960s, especially, um, if they can't burn, uh, the stuff, they, they're still burning stuff in Iraq, uh, now. Um, if they can't burn materials, uh, they, they put them in a dump and they look for a ravine and they uh, push it in a ravine and they cover it up with dirt. Well, ravines are also excellent places to dam up and build reservoirs. So after the war ends, um, local communities are damming up these you know, sort of creek beds and stream beds and building water reservoirs. And so this material was at the bottom of a water reservoir, a shallow reservoir. And a village was cleaning out the mud and muck at the bottom of the reservoir when they hit metal. And they begin uh, using pickaxes to slice through what were 55-gallon drums of CS. Of tear gas. Tear gas, yeah. Um. You know, and people in Vietnam, especially older generation people, are very sensitive about digging and finding metal. I mean, yeah. you can't believe the stories. One um, one couple that I knew in Hue, uh, their, uh, the father-in-law gave them um, wood from an old jackfruit tree 
uh, to make the uh, windowsills in their new home. It's very special. And he hired a great carpenter and everything. And I met the father-in-law. He was mad as hell. He said, I went through 15 saw blades to make this stuff because of all the shrapnel embedded in the tree. Circling back to the, uh, the village that's digging, that's cleaning out the reservoir and they, they, they find these uh, metal, they find this metal that they're digging and they, they puncture it. And, and what happens? Three three men die. They go to the hospital with uh, burns in their esophagus and, you know, people are upset about it. Um, but more importantly, this um, head of an environment and science technology department in the province, um, he said, what happened next was that the forensics team from the Ministry of Defense came down to clean out the rest of the material since it's war related. Um, and then they left the bill of about 100,000 U.S. dollars to the province to pay for their mm. forensics cleanup. So it doesn't work the same as in the U.S. with EPA, or or maybe it does. I don't know. But basically, he said, I'm very interested in environmental history. Can you please find some documents to help us find other hotspots in the province? And uh, and that was my opportunity. So I so went this, back. This is how the region found you? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So then I went back to the archives. I pulled air photography, other documents from bases in the province and uh, shared thousands and thousands of pages of materials uh, with them. And in return, they said, great, you know, have fun, you know, asking questions about the past. And there were obvious limitations in terms of what I could ask and what I couldn't ask, but, um, but it, they, they were a fantastic sponsor. The provincial government, um, kind of okayed it. And, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing, uh, experience to spend about two years, uh, living in Hue and, uh, talking to people and going to some of these historic sites. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off now your book is organized chronologically and i think that many of the readers are going to pick it up expecting it to be about the american war but uh spoiler alert they have to wait until chapter six to really get into the american war and you start much further back actually your opening uh scene is the discovery of a um chom ruins yeah about 15 or almost 20 years ago the discovery of some chom ruins near way um why did you start so far back and uh do these chom ruins serve a metaphoric function for your uh thesis about layers of history yeah i think they do um 
first off, I, I think it's really important um, for the reader um, to, I want the reader to have that immersive experience. Um, I want a reader to think they know a place and then, you know, go be able to really go through these layers and develop an understanding before they get to the 1960s. Because I think my idea is that it helps the reader to, again, to have that lens on militarization and to have a, a deeper sense of how military processes, in a sense, shape the spaces around which contemporary wars happen. And again, I think it's so important when we look at conflict zones in the Middle East, and these are places that people have been fighting over and in for centuries. Um, And it's so important, I think, that we, you know, Americans especially, um, can appreciate that. So so it may tax some people, um, but that was the project I set out to do. And I want to also challenge uh, the, the, the Cham Tower, at least, you know, to challenge the idea that this place is authentically Vietnamese because the Vietnamese conquered it. <laughs> they conquered yeah. it in the 1300s. So they've been there for a long time, but this landscape belonged to someone else uh, before that. And I guess my point there is to, disassociate any particular group of people as kind of morally entitled or you know authentic to landscape to the to this landscape um you know i think one of the things i gained from living in vietnam and 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 looking at you know i had kids who were going to a local school and watching what the kids were reading and studying and how they behaved um you know, I felt that, you know, this is a society that is in, in Vietnam that is quite martial in some ways. And it's partly this fear of outside invasions. They're a small country on the edge of China. Um, but it's, it's when you live in Vietnam or you talk to people there about their experiences, you have a much deeper sense, I think, of how people understand conflict and how it shapes their lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in this history, one of the examples you talk about is the Taesan rebellion, this massive rebellion that overthrew the Vietnamese state and fought against two of the, the, the noble families. It's a rebellion that goes on from 1771 to about 1802. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the Taesan rebellion leave its mark upon the land? Um, can you say a few words on the environmental impact of these military campaigns? Gosh, yeah. I mean, it's one one piece of of an early chapter, which is looking at pre-colonial conflict there. And again, my point is that, you know, no particular side is, in a sense, innocent of conflict, you know, the and Vietnamese are moving into this former Cham territory, but then also they're fighting amongst themselves. Um, and one of the effects of conflict, the other thing I say about the Hue region in particular is that it's pretty much a, a, a border zone between different warring parties and pirates and raiding. I tried to figure out what was the, the earliest point that people were not fighting about it. And um, I have to go pretty far back um, about the second century BC, I think. Um, 
every century there are conflicts in this place. Um, so this con- this geography kind of lends itself. The Taysan period is one of conflict in part because the land is exhausted. Um, the the rice terraces, uh, the estuary areas, uh, population demands, there are numbers of famines going on. Um, and so that they suddenly come around to try to correct that, but in a sense, they kind of make it worse. And you have uh, famine, you know, uh, bodies stacked along the roadside, and it's kind of a, a total disaster um, before the French come into these areas. Right. And when the, um, when you have these famines, people oftentimes turn to foraging in the hillsides, which has a, a long-term ecological impact, right? Right. Yeah. And it can lead to contribute to deforestation and other sort of disruptions. Right. And, and another thing I think people tend to, there's a kind of a presentist bias. We think of our wars in the present day as environmentally destructive because of all the technology we use. Um, but wars in the Daesun area uh, era and into the 1800s were incredibly consumptive of forests and ore, iron ore, mining, uh, really devastating to these hills and landscapes uh, in, in Vietnam. Um, so they were really wastelands in a sense uh, from from that era of uh, fighting. Mm-hmm. And, and you've got a and, section... I'm sorry. I was going to say, so once, and these are also tropical uh, hillsides, they used to be rainforest. And if you know about, you know, rainforest, the the soil is razor thin. So once you deforest and you have these uh, downpours, these monsoons, and the soil washes away, what you're left with is kind of a barren hillside, you know, populated with grasses and uh, not very useful for farmers. Mm-hmm. In, in a later section, you talking about French colonialism, you uh, talk about the bare hills and the special logic of colonial conquest. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk about what you meant with by that? Yeah, so the French are trying to keep up with the English. Um, the the British are in Hong Kong and in China and in India, and uh, French prospectors are basically heading around parts of the Vietnamese coastline. Um, in 1859, um, French naval fleet, it, it attacks Saigon. They take Saigon. They get this great port next to the Mekong Delta. They think the Mekong might be a waterway like the Mississippi where they can go up into central China and get the riches of China. Turns out it's full of rapids and not that accessible. And so they start they start heading further north, and they're kind of in a period of peacemaking with the king in Hue um, when they send a delegation to survey the area. And they're doing two things. One, they're surveying all of that king's defenses, his coastal defenses. They're making detailed notes in case of a future invasion. Um, but they're also surveying the landscape to see what French colonizers could do there. And what they find are these really dense villages along the coast, um, which they describe as full of disease and, um, you know, sort of dark places. And they're basically dark if you're a Frenchman afraid of getting assassinated on the road. Um, but that's, you know, these are the, the center of these old, old villages uh, going back hundreds of years. So they look to the hills in a sense as a space 
for French people, for French people to escape these villages, these crowded villages. And they're full of kind of positive ideas about how French, you know, know-how can transform these hills into thriving coffee plantations or vineyards or I don't know. There are just all kinds of imagined ideas about what they can do as if Vietnamese farmers hadn't tried things like that. Um, so... Um, so they, so I think they look at these bare spaces and these open spaces as spaces of opportunity, um, spaces where the French can kind of make their mark in uh, these landscapes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the second chapter, chapter two, which you call terraforming, you discuss the ways in which French colonizers, radical Vietnamese nationalists, and eventually American pilots in World War II literally looked at the land. Can you expand upon how these historical actors saw and understood the landscape? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I was saying earlier, you know, they, they look at different landscapes in, in different ways. And I think a lot of um, nationalists in the uh, early 20th century, again, they looked at these hillsides and they looked at a lot of land that had not been developed. And you know, at first it was a space of opportunity, but then as French projects failed in these spaces, it became an indictment of colonialism. And so a lot of Vietnamese nationalists, these are youth, you know, they began, you know, sort of organizing and trying to, in a sense, take over the modern state building project from the French. Um, what happens to them? Uh, well, the French police try to round them up, uh, harass them, torture them, throw them in jail. Um, the Communist Party is founded in 1930. And in fairly soon after that, um, through a series of police waves of police repression, these students head to the hills. You know, they have to get out of these villages. They have to get out of the city. And so they begin to really think about these spaces as readouts, as as safe areas um, for building some kind of a resistance. So chapter five, which is the longest chapter of the book and the book on the American war, is entitled Creative Destruction. What do, what do you mean by the use of that term creative destruction? Where does it come from and how do you use it? Yeah, so... I think this term is really important to understanding American justifications for um, destruction in war. Um, And in the 1960s, um, the war was going badly for the United States. Um, 1968 was a pivotal year. Um, and, And really part of the logic of U.S. military leaders and sort of their explanations to the American public about the war was that The Americans controlled the cities in Vietnam, and what the United States was doing in Vietnam was building up a state that would be part of the free world, part of a capitalist world order, and capitalism happens in cities. Therefore, the people in the cities must have loved the United States, and places like Hue were seen as almost neutral zones that Americans walked around freely in the streets. They weren't worried about being attacked. The war was something that happened out in the jungle, that happened out in the mountains. And so the Tet Offensive turns that on their heads. It turns out that the communists were city people too. And Many people in the city did not agree with the Americans. And for two weeks, the National Liberation Front owned Hue. They had their flag up and they ran Hue. 
And this sent shockwaves through uh, the United States uh, government and the Department of Defense and the military because it kind of ran in the face of this idea. And, and, and so uh, there was a theorist at the time named Samuel Huntington who, um, you know, who basically s- turned from this discussion and said to, um, to other academics and the American public, well, the United States is bombing and bombing and bombing and, you know, just clearing out huge areas of forest and hills and pushing refugees into these cities. But eventually, you know, this kind of, he called it, you know, a term creative destruction, it's going to create an urban society. So, I mean, at the cost of millions of lives, that's, you know, that he, he came in for a lot of criticism uh, at that time. Um, but but that idea, that idea of creative destruction um, is was really a kind of a central idea for U.S. bombing and destruction of the landscapes in Vietnam. Um, and so what I do in the book is to try and look at the history of that idea. And, you know, that idea goes back way back into the early 20th century in Germany, um, you have philosophers and historians talking about the annihilation of German forests leading to industrialization. And so this notion of creative destruction and military destruction is connected in many ways to the buildup of cities and to waves of industrialization. In a sense, you know, you have to suffer in the short term, but in the future, Vietnam will have this urban infrastructure. And um, I, I think that that is a really uh, problematic idea. And so I really focus on that idea in that long chapter on the American war. Um, but I think it's an idea that's really persistent. Um, and it's not just persistent with the United States, um, but also with the Vietnamese state, with all states, um, because Military destruction has one really positive effect for states, and that is that it pretty much destroys local and indigenous claims to a particular piece of land. Um, And even post-war, many people are often kept off of land because it's destroyed, it's too toxic, etc., which then opens the way for uh, development of that as industrial space. Um, so the term creative destruction is really meant to both help readers understand kind of the zeitgeist of the time in the 1960s and sort of how people could justify uh, this kind of destruction that was going on in Vietnam, but also to turn a kind of critical eye to the present. You know, the, we, we see a similar um, justification in 2003, 2004 in Iraq. Uh, Naomi Klein calls it a shock doctrine. The shock and awe was supposed to level Baghdad and then allow the American uh, occupation authority to rebuild it in a new way. Um, and of course, it didn't work out. It didn't work out in Vietnam. It hasn't worked out in Baghdad. And, and it's fundamentally flawed, I think, because it's, it's sort of willing um, ignorance of these really complex landscapes. Mm -hmm. Now um, you conclude the book with a section on post-war. Can you talk about some of the ways in which the American war 
continues to linger in the land and in the water of Vietnam? And what are some of the most important environmental legacies of the American War? Well, I think the one most people are familiar with is the legacy of a chemical called dioxin, uh, which was a contaminant, a carcinogenic, uh, mutagenic contaminant found in the herbicide Agent Orange. And I think we know about Agent Orange versus other chemicals and other uh, things used in the war because of all of the court cases. And U.S. veterans uh, were affected and have claimed um, damages from the U.S. government. And uh, it's it's there in our mind. Um but what's interesting, too, is that this dialogue about destruction, this really high-profile dialogue, I mean, it's still a very sensitive topic in, in Vietnam to talk about dioxin. Um, it, in some ways, detracts from the much broader experiences that people have with rehabilitating land that's damaged uh, during wartime. And... Partly what I do in in the the last piece there on the post war is to get back to how people everyday people try to make sense of uh, these spaces and the struggles that they encounter. Um, for example, I I talked to one uh, former head of a, a village who um, was talking about how he wanted to preserve parts of the American base. You know, he described the base as like New York City at night. I mean, bright lights and, you know, helicopters taking off. And he said, you couldn't believe the scale of activity right behind our village. And um, he wanted to preserve a section of it. Um, he went away for a couple of years for training, like a master's degree in Hanoi. And when he came back, it was all gone. Scrap collectors had taken everything. And in a sense, the local authorities, they wanted to erase that memory. They wanted to cover it with trees, um, agroforestry, pavement, whatever they could to kind of for, forget about that. So there's, there's, there's a lot of mixed feelings about how to remember the war, um, whether to remember the war and sort of certain sites and landscapes. Um, you know, that that memory is really political because of so many people who fought on both sides. Um, but another part, and this is where I end the book, that I think is actually um, a moment of hope, uh, is to kind of go back to some of those uh, graveyards and What's really interesting now is that villages have returned to these ancestral tombs and there's a lot of genealogy going on and um, anniversaries for, you know, families who founded these villages hundreds of years ago. And I think what a lot of readers who aren't familiar with Vietnamese culture might not know is that, you know, that in Vietnamese cultural life, um, the sort of genealogy, the villages that your mom comes from or your dad comes from and their ancestors is really important. And for many people, it's more important in a sense, this is a little dangerous to say, than the state. Mm -hmm. And um, remembering one's ancestors rather than going to a patriotic state function for a lot of people in Vietnam is sort of a way of paying a kind of deeper allegiance to your people 
your people being your ancestors, not all the other Vietnamese people around in, in the, the territory. And what's interesting is that the state itself has relaxed in recent years and really begun to encourage what they consider a kind of traditional or pre-revolutionary activity. And what's so cool about it is that, you know, I think a lot of families, people don't realize how many Vietnamese families were split in the war, you know, where brothers and sisters were fighting on opposite sides. And many of them, especially in central Vietnam. Oh, yeah. And uh, and women and men, a lot of women were fighting, too. And after the war ends, what happens to the people on the losing side? Many of them get on boats and they flee. And they come to Australia, California, France, wherever. And so for many of these people, the war is such a painful memory because it destroyed their families. It divided them. And so um, in many cases, talking about the war is a non-starter. Um, but everybody can talk about their ancestors and they can talk about these tombs. And, you know, I, I've i been privileged to join a number of uh kind of uh, ancestral um, death anniversary days and, uh, you know, other uh, Lunar New Year festivals where families go, you know, both overseas and local, go to these tombs to restore these tombs. So I think that that kind of meaning making in the landscape is really valuable. And it, and it speaks again to a kind of healing power in a sense of, reinvesting landscape with kind of meanings and um, meanings that are directly tied to villages and families and communities rather than just stories about militaries and uh, destruction. And it's an affirmation, I think, that, you know, the landscapes of Vietnam are much more than uh, just just a war. So, right. And uh, the the significance for the uh, the families and the um, the way in which that uh, family memory of landscape and ancestry and, and tombs can conflict with building projects. I I remember in the mid nineteen nineties when I was a graduate student doing research in Hanoi, one of my closest Vietnamese friends uh, took me on a motorcycle ride out to see his um, ancestral village um, just north of Westlake, and that there wasn't anything to see there. It was just to see it, but he also sort of noted in sort of a glum manner that this was going to be slated for for development soon, and all that area now is just gone. It's not what was there. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on right now, and it's um, there's a lot of pushback actually, you know, Mm -hmm. in a lot of communities where people are really cynical about um, development and economic progress and whether it's really made them better off. There's a lot of nostalgia too for, for yeah. these villages. So, Well, that, that's great because it really forces us to think about landscape in a different way. We've already taken up a lot of your time today, but before you go, could you please tell us what you're currently working on and what we can hope to see from you next? Well, I'll just say a little bit. Um, I'm really fascinated with the shorelines in Vietnam and really sort of following Vietnamese traffic and encounters uh, across the what they call the Eastern Sea, the South China Sea, um, and really thinking about this era in 20th century history in Vietnam in a more trans-Pacific 
context. Um, when you travel along the coast in Vietnam, you see the, um, the, again, these landscapes that are shaped by these flows of people, not just from the United States, but from Korea, the Philippines. Um, so uh, I'm interested in, in thinking about these shorelines in a more um, global context uh, in, in this period. So not exactly Great. sure what it'll, where it'll take me, but uh, that's what I'm working on now. Great. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing that work and maybe we'll get you back on the podcast at some point. Good. Thank you. So, yeah. Th and thank you again for your time. This was a fantastic conversation. So this has been a conversation with Professor David Biggs of the University of California at Riverside about his new book, Footprints of War, Militarized Landscapes in Vietnam. I'm Michael Van of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.